Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we are beyond excited to welcome the incredible Susan Burton to the show. Susan is an editor at This American Life, where the episodes she's produced include 10 Sessions, Five Women, and Tell Me I'm Fat. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Slate, The New Yorker, many others. And she is a former editor of Harper's. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their two sons. She's joining us today to discuss her new eating disorder memoir, Empty, out now. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Tell us a little bit about, about Empty, the story it tells, and how the, the book came to be. Sure. So like you said, Empty tells the story of my eating disorders. Um, and I kept these eating disorders secrets for decades, really until I wrote the book. I think maybe I'll start with how the book came to be and then tell you a little bit about my own story, which is also the story of the book. So I'm 46. And about 10 years ago, I signed a contract to write a very different book, a book that was meant to be a cultural history of teenage girlhood. But very quickly, um, it became clear to me that that wasn't the book I wanted to write, that instead of writing a cultural history, I wanted to write a very personal history of my eating disorders. But it took me a really long time to admit to myself that that was what I wanted to do. So the story of the book, which is my own story, you know, I think for so many of us with eating disorders, there's sort of a moment when your eating disorder starts, but also there's like a whole timeline of stuff leading up to that moment. So I'll go through a couple dots on that timeline. So I'm 46. I was born in 1973 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And from the start, food was a really big part of my story. My mother tells about going to my first parent-teacher conference when I was in preschool. And the teacher told her, Susan never eats snack. And that didn't surprise my mother. I was a really, I wouldn't even use the word picky. I had such a limited diet. She had a really hard time getting me to eat. And the thing is, I remember that snack table. I remember this like low circular table and kids in chairs and standing near it with my hands behind my back and watching other kids eating. Eating was something I felt outside from the start, like an observer of. I was scared of food. And if you'd asked me what I was scared about, you know, I think I would have said I was scared of not liking tastes. I was scared of feeling sick. I was scared of something happening to my body. So that's, that's sort of the first piece of it. But this was also stuff I didn't want anyone to know, right? Like I didn't want anybody to notice me being scared. At the same time, I was growing up with these fears of food. I was also growing up in a family that was very weight and size and appearance conscious. So I went on my first diet when I was nine. And you know what? I think partly I got the idea to go on a diet from kind of the cultural soup I was swimming in to have commercials and special K and like balancing a ruler across your hip bones and, and all of that early 80s stuff. But there were also messages I internalized from, from my family. So that's nine, age nine. The next dot on the timeline, I would say, is 1984. I was 10. And I got my period. And it was unusual in 1984 to get your period at 10. And I really was kind of profoundly destabilized by this. I, I, just, I just wasn't ready. And I had hips and breasts and a waist. 
I was uncomfortable in my new body. I didn't concretely try and undo anything then, but that was sort of what I moved into adolescence with, was this feeling of not being myself anymore in this new body. So fast forward, I'm 15 years old. I'm a sophomore in high school. Over Christmas break, I get a stomach bug and I lose a little water weight. I don't gain it back. And I find that I kind of like this feeling of being a little lighter is what it felt like to me. It felt like an unburdening. I sought more of that feeling. And within a few months, I'd lost my period. I was anorexic. And with only a few short months after that, the restricting had shifted into binging, which obviously we know is a really common trajectory, but I had no idea. I had no idea what was happening to me. And the binging really defined my life through the second half of high school, through most of college. And like many people with eating disorders, I was a very black and white thinker. The way to stop binging was to start restricting was to do what I thought of as quitting food. And I spent the early part of my 20s anorexic again. The book sort of ends there. There's, a, there's an epilogue written from the perspective of my mid-40s self, where I talk about where I am now, which is working toward recovery. So the epilogue is sort of the beginning of the me who's standing talking into the microphone, telling you the story. Thank you for that timeline. I'm thinking of the different passages that I can recall from the book as you're explaining that and and sort of hanging little pieces on them. I have some questions that I'll pepper in through. I I think you'll answer many of them in just your storytelling. You you describe the book, and I'm fascinated by this, you describe the book not uh, as one that moves from sort of illness to recovery, but from secrecy to telling. And it's it's a confession of sorts, right? That you sort of dream of making at various points through your adolescence or young adulthood. So I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that, the desire to to open up about your issues with food and also the weight of carrying a a secret for so long and how you envisioned others might react to your your telling that, that sharing an eating disorder story, personal experience can be very vulnerable. I'm curious what your experience was. Sure. So the first part of the question about moving from illness to recovery, how this book is not about moving from illness to recovery, but about moving from secrecy to telling. It was very important to me to be clear about where I am. I am working toward recovery. I'm not yet recovered. And it's so important to me to say that not only because I don't want people to think that I think I have all the answers because I don't, but also because I think it's really important to hear from people who are in the liminal space of recovery which, as we know, is not linear and, and is, is hard for me to talk about. I do start stumbling a little when I talk about because it's very, for me, is a vulnerable place to be right now because um, it changes so much. And it's hard for me to name where I am because I'm in the middle of it. But I'm happy to, to talk more about that because, like I said, it is really important to me to, to tell that story too. But as far as moving from secrecy to telling, my eating disorders were very secret. I was committed to my secrecy. But at the same time, I often had this urge to tell. When I was in high school and I was kind of newly binging, I wanted to tell in part because I was scared. I knew I had a problem I couldn't fix, even though I wanted to fix it myself. So I wanted to tell to get help, to get over it. But I also had this other motivation for telling, which was that I wanted to be close to people. 
you know, I now understand that I was binging in part to meet needs for intimacy and connection that maybe I wasn't feeling in friendships. But at the time, I had this urge to tell really connected to closeness. You know, in college, I would go so far as to kind of like enact fantasies of telling. So as much as I was like fantasizing about what my life would be like when I no longer binged, I was fantasizing about telling someone about it. So I would sit down like in my dorm room at my little Macintosh and I would like type a letter to my best friend and it would start out as like an apology letter. You know, with eating disorders, you're often hiding something or behaving in a way that is strange or in a way that doesn't make sense to other people. And with that best friend at the time, we were, we were meant to room together. We were freshmen and we planned to room together sophomore year. And I just pulled out at the last minute and she was hurt and it didn't make any sense to her. And I couldn't explain why. To me, it was all connected to my eating disorder. Everything was connected to my eating disorder. So I, I sat down and I started this letter to her. But the person who was writing the letter was not like me in, you know, March of 1992 in my dorm room. It was the me of the future of, you know, summer 1992 back at my mother's house in Boulder, Colorado. And I'd write this whole letter and I would say, you know, so Sheva, I have this thing to tell you. I, I have an eating disorder and I've been going to this group at the Boulder Women's Center a few times a week. And my eating disorder, it's, it's not bulimia. I don't throw up. Like there was, there was no sort of name that I knew for, for binge eating disorder then. It was always hard for me to explain it. And what strikes me now when I think about that is two parts to that fantasy. One, that one of the things I fantasized about was actually going to therapy and going to a group and connecting with other women about it. And also that in a way, what I did with the book, the book is sort of the equivalent of, of that letter. So this urge to tell this, this ambivalence between hiding and revealing, I think, remained with me my entire adulthood. You know, now, I now understand that the most important thing, telling my secret in the book, that writing my secret down, the most important thing that did was get me to start talking, was get me to therapy, was get me talking to my husband about it. And, and when I think about the impact that telling a story can have for readers, to, to get to the last part of the question, I mean, when I was in college, I would take the elevator to the top floor of the stacks, often after a binge. And there were two eating disorder memoirs in the library then. And one was a memoir of bulimia. One was a memoir of anorexia. I gravitated to the memoir of bulimia. And I would read the opening sections over and over again. I felt such profound identification with this woman who had shared the struggle that I did. So certainly... That was in my mind as I was writing that people going through this stuff might find the book. But I'd also say that my motives for writing it, it wouldn't be honest to say it was like entirely altruistic. <laughs> you know, like I was, there was something kind of like urgent. There was a personal urgency in writing it down. Since the book has been published, the response from readers has been the absolutely most meaningful and really unexpected piece of it for me. Not only that people have reached out and said, your story could have been mine, but saying, and your story prompted me to make change. You know, I read passages to my therapist. I signed up for a program. And I say this not to make myself look good, but just because I think that storytelling is so powerful, that when we share our experiences, we help others make change in, in their lives. Absolutely. 
I'm curious about the story that you'll tell, you know, in a couple of years, looking back on this experience, how your sense of self will be impacted through that. Gosh, I, I mean, I can say a, a little bit right now. It has made me feel more of an urge to do advocacy around these issues, whatever that advocacy looks like for me. Maybe it's more storytelling. That's that's the immediate thing that comes to mind just because that's my skill set. But it has instilled in me this conviction that we need to talk more about this. And, and that is something that, that I want to do. Absolutely. I was fascinated by something you wrote about at the end in your, in your work in therapy, where you were talking about the tracks and the concept of feeling or coming to the conclusion, maybe, if I'm remembering correctly, that, that the eating disorder sort of feels like this track that's there. And part of your process is boosting the signal on the other tracks, sort of elevating to other places. I'm, I'm curious if you can say a little bit about that. And I'll, I'll tell you why, where my question comes from as you think about it, that as we start to understand more and more about the brain science of eating disorders, and we understand how, you know, it seems like people who end up with eating disorders are very likely predisposed genetically to, to be at risk for them, right? There's something just a little different about the brain wiring around food, around that experience, around that reward experience or, or lack of reward that just is a little different. And, and because I read a lot about neurobiology, I sort of read your book with that lens and I thought, yes, that fits at least in, in my hearing of it that the the track that you're trying to sort of boost the signal on other things to keep that one a little quieter is that sort of neurobiologically wired track that perhaps makes your brain just a little different around food like many of us who have had eating disorders our brains are just wired a little differently around food so i guess my question is what what tracks are you finding work better for you to elevate and to raise the signal on those so that the the eating disorder one can kind of quiet down a little bit I mean, it's such a good question. And it's one that I am still actively engaged in figuring out. So in that passage in the book, you know, I talked about telling my therapist, like, I just wanted to get rid of that track. And she was like, no, 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 like deleting that track, getting rid of that track isn't exactly the right answer. The important thing, as you said, is to, to boost the signal on the other tracks to like develop strengths and ways of coping that I neglected. So when you ask that question, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that one strength that I am still developing is the ability to sit with discomfort, to sit with feelings that I don't want to have. <laughs> so for years, eating or not eating uh, was the way that I coped for a huge range of, of discomfort. Right now, as long as we're talking about therapy, so my therapist is on her August break, um, it's a very uncomfortable time for me. But I am forcing myself to sit with the discomfort and to be like, okay, I miss her, but it's okay. And I will see her again. And there's work I can still be doing. And it's okay to feel this way. And I don't have to race away from this feeling. So, so I think that's one of the strengths I'm developing is trying not to race away from discomfort. Another track I'm trying to boost the signal on, I hope that this volume metaphor works, I'm trying to sort of set the volume in the middle. I'm used to having like flying highs and kind of crashing lows and to not striving for a state of like evenness and calm. And so that is another area I'm trying to develop. And then I guess the, the last thing I would say is self-compassion. 
is is a really is a really big one, which is something I had a huge <laughs> deficit of, and so I'm I'm really trying to raise the signal on that. That's beautiful. For whatever it's worth, as as, as somebody who's had an eating disorder and, and worked with a lot of people that have had eating disorders in my clinical career, I think that those are really good things to be doing. You so eloquently described things that so many people find that they need. That concept of sitting with a feeling is hard. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> Why do we have to do that? And it turns out, of course, you know, when you do it, those feelings actually do ebb. They really do ebb and flow, right? They really do move on. Well, that's the thing is trusting that. I mean, that's the thing that was so hard for me to understand that this isn't final. Like it, like just if you sit with the sadness, it it might not happen immediately, but it it will shift. Yeah. And and it might get some other friends that come in and help it move along. And it, it really is a process, but it's hard. It's absolutely hard to do. And and I think, you know, we talk a lot about what eating disorder recovery looks like and what it means to be in that different space of of recovery that we still still gonna have the kinds of brains that we have that maybe find a little bit more difficulty with with certain things like, you know, having that feeling intensity or or trying to figure out exactly how to make it happen so that it can go back to some specific place. And it turns out we don't actually all have control over that and and fully can dictate that. So it's really a lot about acceptance and and your last point about self-compassion. Self-compassion is hard and very rewarding when we can have ourselves find that place. So I think those are, are beautiful things to be thinking about. I think also a lot about, particularly with binge eating disorder, which is an eating disorder that we know impacts way more people than, than anorexia and bulimia. It's not any less or more important. It's, it's an eating disorder we don't talk about as much. And I think in some cases, we don't talk about it because it has, as part of the experience of the disorder, and also the tons of judgment and social messaging that come around eating and overeating, it has a really significant aspect of shame to it. And in some ways, some ways that doesn't happen as much with anorexia. You describe your your binge eating as a uh, a bigger secret than your anorexia because your anorexia was more visible, you know, not not always, but sometimes we can see more somebody that's struggling with anorexia than we can binge eating disorder. How else did your experience of the sort of two disorders compare? I mean, I guess what I'd say first is what I understand now is that the disorders in the end served the same function for me. They were doing the same thing, eating and not eating. They were both ways to cope with emotional pain, to, to manage unmanageable feeling, both ways of avoiding and dissociating. But the fact is that the, like, the concrete lived experience of those two disorders, it's, it's different. I mean, there's sort of two different vibes, right? Binge eating disorder, for me, had a very different vibe than anorexia. And I spent the first couple of years binging just hating myself. And then there came a day, freshman year of college. You know, I'd gone to binge. I kind of had rounds of food shops I would go to. Some of them were sort of at the edge of campus so that nobody would see me. And I was sitting in one of these little cafes and I just finished binging. And I was doing what I often did after a binge. I would write. And, you know, the first couple pages would just be this stream of, you know, I messed up and anger at myself. And then that would sort of give way into sort of like, I'm going to move forward. This is the last time. I'm never going to do this again. Here's what I'm going to do. 
and my life would be filled with hope and possibility again. And that day, I was so convinced it was going to be the last day. And all of a sudden, I had this little fear, I'm going to miss this. And that was the first time that I realized I was getting something out of it. And I sort of paused and tried to figure out what it was that I was getting out of it. I think part of what it did for me, I was somebody who didn't have a lot of experience in acting anger. And binging for me had this kind of like furious energy where I did have access to anger. It was an aggressive act. It was destructive. But at the end, there was always this moment that to me felt generative. There was this writing. There was this hope of renewal. So it was this cycle of destruction and renewal that I was very attracted to. And there was something about that that felt very alive. I say this not to romanticize or recommend or, you know, I, I would never want to go back there. But that, that's how that felt. Anorexia felt very different. I didn't, I didn't hate my body in the same way. I think I probably still didn't like myself a lot, but I was very shut down. So as isolated as I was during the binging, the anorexic isolation had a different quality. And that anger, I think I was still angry, but I was often angry at others for reasons that might have been inexplicable to them because I was often very hungry. I remember this day, you know, in my early 20s, like a meeting in a conference room and it was like 20 minutes over when I needed to go and eat my little sandwich. And I just, I just left the room. I sort of stormed out of the room. And I heard somebody say as I was leaving, what's wrong? Is Susan okay? And no, of course, I actually wasn't okay. You know, I was starving. I was doing something to myself that was not good. I was self-harming. So I think that there was an odd vitality to the binge eating disorder that the anorexia did not have, but the quality they shared was profound isolation. Yeah, that's well, well said. You know, we think about why, I, you know, I often think about people who, because they don't fully understand, might think that somebody would choose to have an eating disorder or that somebody's doing this to control something or somehow doing it to do something. And, and, you know, I'm usually the first to say like, oh, nobody chooses to have an eating disorder. You know, choosing a, an illness with the second highest mortality rate in all of the behavioral health disorders is not a, a choice people are going to make willingly, that these are illnesses that some people get and they're hard to get better from. They're possible to get better from. They're hard to get better from because our bodies are so biologically amazing in terms of how we adapt from our our physiological and psychological selves to feeling like, okay, this is really awful and terrible in so many ways. And yet at the same time, I feel soothed or energized or this vitality or this simplification of, of the world to be more manageable. So I, I think that while eating disorders don't make a lot of sense in lots of ways, both people who have them and don't have them, if you can step back and think about it, they do start to make some sense that, of course, it's hard to stop doing something that you might miss because of the thing that it does. Even in all of its negative aspects, it has some of this sort of positive feeling to it or, or somewhat positive that is really, I think, complicated and a little difficult to explain or illustrate for people. But I think your story does does both of those things, that this behavior that at the same time you didn't want to have, you know, the variety of behaviors that you didn't want, you also 
didn't want to not have. So it is a, a, a story of, of conflict in many ways. Uh, and that finding the self through it and being able to sit with those feelings and tend to the self really does help the body and the brain to see that there are other ways and that it doesn't have to be that way. Exactly. As you, as you start to understand your experience more and more, and, and we know you're still making sense of them and, and, you know, we're, we're humans. So we spend our whole lives making sense of our lives. But I, th- I think with eating disorders, as people progress further along in their path, they're like, oh, yes, now I understand the eating disorder and then I understand me and I can move forth with me without having to have the eating disorder. Uh, you've said a, a little bit of this, but if you can say a bit more about sort of those, those purposes they served or the functions that the needs they met, you know, the needs of these behaviors, which on some level you did not want there, you wanted to stop. And yet... It felt like it was it was meeting some need. What are the key needs it feels like they met in your life? I mean, you know, with the binging, the need for connection that that I didn't feel I was getting. That's that's the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, I'll tell a story about a stage right before I started binging really compulsively. I was 16 years old. It was my junior year. My parents were divorced. I lived in Colorado. My father lived in Michigan. He came out for a visit and we went out to lunch. I was always really nervous when my father came to visit. And in retrospect, I'm sure I was nervous for a lot of reasons, but I always ascribed the nervousness to these lunches, to these, these restaurant meals where I wouldn't know how much to eat. I wouldn't know, you know, was the food going to be heavy? Was it going to make me feel a certain way? So we'd gone out to lunch. And at that time in my life, I was kind of moving from anorexia to binging. So at that lunch, I ate more than I wanted to, ate more than I was comfortable eating. He dropped me off at home. I walked into my house, went into the kitchen, opened the cupboard, and dipped my hand into some trail mix that we had. And it was trail mix like I didn't even like. It was like this health food store trail mix with like these seeds that were like bird food seeds. Like I, I, I didn't even like it, but I was putting it in my mouth and. The feeling that I had then was the feeling that characterized the binging and I think explains some of what it did for me for all the years to come. I had the feeling, want something else, want more, something more. You know, that day with my father, did I want some connection with him Did that I wasn't getting? Did I want him to see me some certain way? Did I want to show him some part of myself that I didn't think I could? probably all of those things. Did I just want some other food <laughs> because the food that I had eaten wasn't satisfying? That might've been part of the want too. You know, and, and as I sort of got deeper into binging, it would often be the kind of thing where I would be out with a friend. Um, I had this best friend, Jules, and I felt I always wanted to be closer to Jules than she did to me. You know, I would drop her off at home and I would come home and I would tell myself I was just going to hang my key and go straight upstairs. But instead I would go into the kitchen And start binging. And, you know, as long as I was doing that, I didn't have to think. I didn't have to think of any lack of connection with her. I didn't have to think of any loss or pain. And as soon as I was done, the self loathing would flood in and the fear because my heart would be racing from all I would eat. And then I would be scared something was going to happen to my body. But that was a known feeling too, that was familiar. So, I didn't like feeling self-loathing, but I still didn't have to feel this loss or this lack of connection with my friend Jules. 
And then the anorexia, you know, that, that helped me in my mind, what it helped me do was, was feel liberated from the binging, was feel free from the binging. I thought that the anorexia was the thing that was going to help me move back into the world to give me the freedom to do anything I wanted, to be in control. If anything bad happened to me, if something went wrong at work, if something went wrong at home, as long as I felt a certain empty way inside or there was a certain number on the scale, I was going to be okay. So it served a kind of protective function for me. But of course, it didn't protect me. It, it limited me. And it took me a really long time to realize that. Absolutely. Both of those descriptions make a lot of sense. One of the, the things that you describe in the book that I hear echoes of in, in what you're saying, but if you can speak more directly, is you, you talk a little bit about how your family impacted your relationship with food and with body and, and thinking specifically uh, your grandmother's celebration of thinness and your parents' relationship with their own bodies. How does that knowledge, how did that impact the way that you, that you talk about or relate to food and body as a parent yourself? Sure. So yes, my family as a whole, not just my parents, but my family as a whole, really a lot of focus on appearance and size. So, you know, I remember going back to school shopping with my grandmother. This is the year I was going to fifth grade. My younger sister was going to be in kindergarten. We're standing in the dressing room and my grandmother just clapped her hands together and said, I'm so glad I have thin grandchildren. And like, you know, I knew as a kid that that was kind of a weird thing to say. And we all kind of joked about it. But like at the same time, I sort of felt weird that we were all joking about it because I knew that that size was important in my family. We always had like a special scale from the sharper image. You know, my mother drank tab. My father was a triathlete and a marathoner. Like I remember the late 70s bestseller, Fit or Fat. And he, he would have like particular foods he was obsessed with, like it would be shredded wheat. So I knew that as a parent, I wasn't going to comment on size. I wasn't going to say things like, I feel fat. Do I look fat around my children? But the reality is that I have two children. They're 15 and 12. And throughout their lives, I have been struggling with an eating disorder. And I think it's important to acknowledge that they have internalized stuff. So maybe it hasn't been about a scale, but I've had my issues. So those early childhood issues with kind of like fear and anxiety about food, those have really been a feature of my adulthood. So issues about, is this food okay? You know, is it safe to eat? I am absolutely positive that they've kind of internalized that. Needing to control food, they've definitely seen me eating different dinners than, than they and their father. So I think what's important to me now is recognizing that, okay, so those things happened, but part of why I wrote the book is because secrecy was really a part of my family in various ways growing up. And I want my children to know that anything can be talked about. I don't want them to read the book. <laughs> the book is, is something for them to read later. They're, they're not ready for it. Like the information would be burdensome, but we can talk about what the book is and we can talk about the the importance of talking about our problems with one another. And, and I do think it's healthy for them to see a parent saying, okay, so there's this thing, I'm working on it. You know, I have this thing and I'm working on it. And this is something that we as people do. We have problems and we work on them and we get better. And, and that's a, a healthy thing. You know, I do, I wish I could go back in time 
and, um, you know, have entered treatment, you know, in my 20s before I had kids. But the fact is that I didn't. So I hope I'm, I'm using, you know, the opportunity now to talk about these things with them in, in healthy ways. What an amazing and, and I think just spot on role modeling. Uh, you're right. We, we all deal with things. And what better gift to give to our children than we can work on these things and make progress and open up and get support and share. And that's how life goes because life's full of challenges, right? Life hands us lots of things to manage and to model that for your children, I think really is a gift of here's how this goes. And they will take that into, into their young and older adulthood. Here's what, you know, one of the many things I'm sure they'll say, one of the many things that you taught them as a parent was that it's okay to talk about things and that it's good to talk about things and get support and that we all have things to work on. So sounds like you're being an excellent role model for them in that sense, which is fantastic. I think about, you know, a couple of things. One, how might this book that you've written or a book like it, how might it have helped that adolescent or young adult self? You know, it's sort of that concept of what would you have whispered in that that 10-year-old's ear or that 16-year-old's ear? How might this book be a, a bit of a help to that young person? I mean, I think that that knowing who I was as a young person and knowing that other people's stories were such a source of solace and sustenance for me, you know, knowing that you're not alone, that is, that is huge because eating disorders are so isolating. So to understand that you're not the only one is really meaningful. You know, I will say that, so my teenage self didn't like to read to the end, to the part of the book where the person becomes an adult and recovers. And I hope that a younger person or any person reading my book gets to the end and reads about where I am now and internalizes the message that uh, these aren't problems that we can fix on our own, that we need other people to help us and support us, and that it is really transformational and wonderful to, to open up about these problems. And I think I hope that, that a parent of a young person would take that message too, that, that anything they can do to get that young person to open up to the possibility of, of working through this problem with, with another is, is really enormously helpful. Absolutely. I, I teach an eating disorders course each semester here at the University of Minnesota. And the final assignment for my course is that the students have to select a memoir book to read and then write about. And there's a whole series of things I have to write about. And I very much expect to, to have a number of my students select your book the next number of semesters and, and really look forward to seeing their reflections on it. Because I, I think it's so critical that, that people who are struggling with eating disorders hear stories and hear hope and hear that they're not alone, right? There's so much about eating disorders as your, as your book so beautifully and in some ways painfully illustrates that eating disorders are so isolating and that isolation helps them to thrive. And so the more we can do as a, as a society, as people, to let each other in and to speak about the stories and to, to share the stories and let people know that there, there is hope and connection, the better we'll be. So I, I think that your story, your book will be a beautiful example of that. And really a message that that is a really big part of the path to healing is opening up the risk of opening up to that connection, that it's, it's tough and scary and vulnerable and ultimately really the path 
towards feeling more connected to self and feeling more whole. You know, I certainly took that from myself out of the book. It's a beautiful story of, of that, that the risk is, is worth it. Sharing the story is incredibly important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm honored that your students uh, might, might choose the book. That's, that's really exciting to me. And I, I think, too, that that's something would, that would have helped me as a young person, even, even if I intellectually knew that an eating disorder was a mental health issue, I, I still thought it was something that I should be able to fix on my own, that it was my fault. And I think that for young people or people of any age, understanding eating disorders as mental health issues, as issues of mental illness, like it, you know, as, as stigmatized as mental illness is in our country, it's still better to have eating disorders fall into that category than in this category of something that you're just doing to yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, I look forward to the, the day where getting help for an eating disorder is as clear cut and as accepted as somebody who breaks a bone and goes in and gets help with that because nobody would say, you know, I don't think you're trying hard enough to fix this broken bone or why don't you just stop having a broken bone, right? It's so ridiculous. Right. And yet, unfortunately, we do that too often to people with eating disorders because we don't understand that just like we can't fix our own broken bones, we can't just magically fix or stop having an eating disorder. It's an illness that needs care. And that when we get care, people do well and that people are ultimately with eating disorders and the traits that we know that predispose people to get eating disorders are amazing, incredible, gifted people who have have so much to, to share with the world and that getting help can can really prevent the eating disorder from holding them back to their to their really their full potential. Susan, where can we find your book? Where can we find you online on social media? Tell us where to find you. Excellent. So my book, Empty, uh, is available on Amazon and for your local independent bookseller and anywhere. I am online at susanburton.net. Um, and if you go to my website, you can find a link to my Instagram and my Twitter as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Any parting words that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I am just, I'm thrilled. I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I felt very safe. This was very warm. Thank you. And, you know, I did listen to a few episodes over the past month, uh, you know, in, in preparation. And, and the work that you guys are doing on the podcast is just great. Like the episode about eating disorders in midlife, that's a demographic, right? That doesn't get talked about. And, and accepting these changes in our bodies. I mean, it's, you know, as transformative time as adolescence. That was a really important episode. And there was an episode with a woman who is an advocate. She was talking about sort of like the, her personal story and how it led to her advocacy. And that was really powerful too. Anyway, thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. that's Joanna Candell of the Alliance for yeah. Disorders. Yeah, she's, she's an incredible advocate. Her story, your story, all of our stories, I think it's really the power of sharing the story that if we don't share it, nobody will know because how would they? Right. How would they know? And so it is so, so important. I've so enjoyed having you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Peacemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>